Well, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5. We'll be starting at verse 13. It should come up on the screen. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Confidences really is just being able to turn on the mic. Um, but um, thanks everyone for actually being here in the building and you know wearing the face mask and everything we have to do now just to meet together. And I realise it is an onerous task, particularly if you've had a coffee and you've realised for the first time how your breath smells as it rebounds off the mask to you. Um, but thank you for actually being here or for those tuning in online. Um, and if you are here and it's either your first time at church or you're tuning in, and this all seems a bit grand to you, I just want to encourage you, that it's, it's not like a, being a senior pastor, I don't get like a wand and a cape or something with that, it's nothing magical or anything like that, but it's something that we do as a church life to celebrate the fact that um, Jesus is head of the church, Jesus grows his church, and he appoints people to serve and love his people along the way, and so it's a very humbling and, and honouring privilege to be able to serve you guys in this way. And so I wanted to open up to Jesus' words because he is the head of the church. I wanted to open up to the passage that Cam read out before, Matthew 5, because it was a significant passage in the life of this church. In 2012, uh, Gav, who was the senior pastor up until last year, Gav and I, who've ministered together for almost over 15 years, we sat down in a church, uh, in a church, we sat down in a cafe in 2012. And to give you some indication of the time, Toby's estate was a really edgy bean at that point, and focaccia and sun-dried tomatoes were kind of really edgy sort of ingredients. So that was sort of the era that we were in, and we sat down, and, uh, and we were at that point committed to planning a church together, and we're gathering a core team, and um, we were sitting there thinking, like, what are we going to call this? We've never been in the position to, like, name a church before. And um, I had a name in mind, but foolishly, I'd, I'd shared it publicly and someone else who was church planning took it early in the game. And so I was kind of out. And so we were sitting down thinking, like, what do, what do we want to actually call it? And uh, recently, both of us had been reading through Matthew 5, where Jesus says to the church, he's laying out what the church is to be like. He says, you're a city on a hill and a light that can't be hidden. And so we thought, why don't we call it City Light? It's a great reminder that we are a, a church steeped in Scripture that Jesus sets the agenda for his church through his word, and also struck a good balance between the Bible and the current trend of making churches sound like clothing stores. So we thought, yeah, it's kind of like somewhere in between that little zone. And our heart from the start was to be a church that would hold fast to the ancient truth of the gospel and yet bring it into a modern context. To contextualize the gospel but not compromise it, to be in the world and engaged with it but not of the world, And to be honest, I never really expected to be here on this day. We had our first commissioning service for Gav on May 30 in 2013, and I didn't actually expect that there would be another one after that. And so this is kind of a surprise in that way. And it's a privilege to be able to serve in this way, and there were many things about 2020 that were obviously pretty unexpected. 
But here we are, and what hasn't changed? Well, what hasn't changed is that Jesus is still on the throne, he's still building his church, and he still calls his church to be a city on a hill and a light that cannot be hidden. And so I'm going to pray that as we open up this text this morning, we would understand Jesus' design for his church, that you, if you are listening in or here and you are skeptical or have questions about the church, that you would see that Jesus' church, vision for his church is incredible and amazing. And that you might even be compelled to want to be a part of it. And that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you'd be re-envisioned to see what Jesus' church is meant to be about. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that your, the church is your design, that it was your idea to bring people together from every tribe, nation and tongue, from every background, from every experience, to have their sins forgiven, to be washed and to be made new and to find life in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that as we open your word, you would open our hearts and speak directly to us. And, Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. The year 2067, as I say that, does that mean anything to you? I wonder if for some of you the first thought was flying cars. Well, just so you know, people thought that would happen in 2020, but instead we've just got apps, endless apps. But 2067 is a number that Damien Thompson thinks is pretty significant, and this is what he says about it. In an article that he wrote several years ago, he said, It's often said that Britain's church congregations are shrinking. But that doesn't come close to expressing the scale of disaster now facing Christianity in this country. Every 10 years, the census spells out the situation in detail. Between 2001 and 2011, the number of Christians born in Britain fell by 5.3 million, about 10,000 a week. If that rate of decline continues, the mission of St. Augustine to the English, together with that of the Irish saints to the Scots, will come to an end in 2067. That is the year in which the Christians who have inherited the faith of their British ancestors will become statistically invisible. That's Damien Thompson's take on the church as a skeptical person, as a journalist and writer himself. Now, I wonder how that makes you feel. If you're skeptical or agnostic, that may make you feel somewhat vindicated. If you are someone who you may even describe yourself as religious, you might feel kind of sad about the fact that a cultural institution with volunteering and all that comes with it is kind of declining. But if you're a Christian, how does that make you feel? Possibly concerned? Or you might be like, ah, oh, the UK, that's, you know, they're their own sort of thing. They've got their own thing going on. That's not where we're at. But if you do feel sad about it, I want you to just hold that thought. And I wonder why you feel sad about that if you do. Because failure casts a backward shadow, and I think these statistics are concerning, but there's something more pressing and urgent. See, I think that before the church becomes statistically invisible, it becomes practically invisible or culturally invisible. Let me direct you to a more pressing quote from a more recent article reflecting on the state of the church from, again, someone who would say they're on the outside of the church looking in. Ben Sixsmith says, I'm not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. 
For me, this quote is almost far more concerning. That it would be a sad state of affairs for the church to be statistically significant in a country and yet practically insignificant. To a journalist like Ben Sixsmith could say, I look at their lives, but to be honest, it, I don't find it particularly confronting. They seem to be living pretty much the same life that I am, which leads me to believe that there is nothing particularly important to investigate about their life or worldview. And maybe what's even more concerning is that Jesus' heart for his church is not that it would be like this, that his church would actually be different. And right at the beginning of a section of the Gospel of Matthew that we're going to spend almost this whole year in, Jesus is about to kind of lay out his manifesto for what it's, what it's going to be like to be his follow-up. And a famous thing, you may have heard of it, even if you haven't been around church or didn't grow up in a church, you may have heard of it. It was called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus lays out what it's going to look like to follow him. And right in the early section, he says this in Matthew 5.13. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus says to his followers, You are the salt of the earth. Now, why salt? People have kind of hypothesized about what he sort of means here. Salt was used in the ancient world for preserving things. So some have said, well, you know, those who follow Jesus are meant to hold on to some traditional beliefs. Some have theorized that uh, it's more about flavor, that, you know, Christians are kind of meant to be at, at the heart of bringing about new kind of cultural, creative uh, things. But really probably the clearest line is just that Jesus is saying, if you've got something, salt, and then it's not salty anymore, what's the point of it? If, if what it's supposed to be is salty and it's no longer that, then it's no longer useful. Jesus is saying if salt loses its saltiness, then throw it out. And similarly, he says, if church loses its churchiness, then it too is not worth anything. And then the question will be, well, what's churchiness? All kinds of things might come to your mind at that point. You might think of the boring Sunday school teacher that you grew up with, if, if that was your background. You might think of... Um, of Reverend Lovejoy from The Simpsons. You might think of various other kind of stereotypes that come through. But the simplest answer from the context where Jesus is speaking is that the churchiness of church is exactly what he's about to lay out for his people. He's about to speak to them about radical generosity, radical kindness, forgiveness, radical holiness and purity, radical love. This is the saltiness of the church. This is the difference this is the point of difference. Transformed lives. People who have met Jesus, experienced the gospel, and been totally changed. A salty church is one that is both confronting and compelling to the dominant culture. Because a church that is only compelling will not have an impact. So there is and has been a movement to avoid all the offensive or difficult things that are in the gospel all the things that confront a particular culture, and to just focus on the things that are most compelling. While Mel and I were away on holidays, we turned on the TV only to realize that, of course, there's no streaming services. And so, like, what do we do? So we went into a drawer, and we pulled out, there was a, a whole stack of DVDs. Now, a DVD stands for digital video disc. And what it is, is like this tiny magical disc that when you put it in a DVD player, uh, it plays a movie for you. Unbelievable. If you can get past the ads and the special features and all of that. But anyway, it was slim pickings, 
and so we were looking through, and this, often, I don't know if you've been in a holiday rental, they often have a weird, a really eclectic kind of selection of DVDs, but at this place it was kind of like 50 Bond films, the complete series of Saw, remember Saw when that was a thing? Yeah, I know that, yeah, exactly. Then like Paddington Bear, and then, then we saw a classic Sister Act. <laughs> and so we thought, yeah, let's, let's, let's get into Sister Act. If you don't know the movie or the premise behind it, Whoopi Goldberg is a singer-performer at a, at a casino. She's dating a mobster, accidentally walks in on, and witnesses a crime, and then kind of runs out, realises her life's in danger, so she goes to the police. And, and this is the bit that kind of moves a little bit quickly in the film. Uh, he's not sure if there's like a mole in the office or whatever, so he's like, I think the best place to put her is not witness protection, but like a Catholic nun, what's a convent, right? And so again, yeah, it's just, you, you kind of just let it go, right? It's, it, that's what happens. Anyway, she goes into this place. It's a dying old Catholic church. Two or three weird old people come each week, spread out in the church building. The minister gives a sermon knowing that, you know, obviously no one's going to hear or respond to it, kind of giving it to the wind. And then the choir is awkward, out of key, all this sort of stuff. But because of her background in singing, she gets involved in the choir, turns it around, and they basically just take Motown songs and take out the word baby and put in Jesus. And then, and then people start showing up. They're even like throwing just piles of money. Like why, why that's happening, I don't know anyway. But they're just putting piles of money in the offertory as it's going around. Everything starts to go great. And of course, the, I mean, the movie's just for fun. It's meant to just be hilarious. I'm not trying to make a large cultural comment. But underlying it, I think, was the belief that, and, that, and a lot of churches bought into it, was that, yeah, of course, church has been stuffy and old and irrelevant. So if you just make it fun, people will come, and they'll love it, and they'll get amongst it. And lots of churches started going this way, almost desperate to do anything to get people through the door, avoiding anything that might be difficult or hard to work through or even offensive that's in the gospel, and just focusing on getting people in. Let's just do the things that are most attractive and compelling. But here's the problem. They lost their saltiness. And the truth is that in an entertainment-obsessed culture, you are never going to out-entertain the competition. When churches lose their distinctiveness, their radical desire to follow Jesus with a passion... They lose their churchiness. In short, they are salt that has lost its saltiness. And even businesses know this principle. One of the stages of decline is when organizations get obsessed about growth for growth's sake and they forget the distinctives that made them a great organization in the first place. Well, Jesus called it out 2,000 years ago and said, you're to be salt that has not lost its saltiness. You're to be different. You're to follow me in a way that stands you out from the culture in a way that is both confronting but also compelling. Because when churches edit out all the difficult bits of Jesus' teaching and just leave in the bits that are compelling, you have a toothless Christianity. One that is easily ignored. One that authors like Ben Sixsmith can, can write about. To be honest, I don't really see like there's anything that I need to engage with there. It is easily ignored. And the one infallible fact in church statistics is that no church dies faster than a church that abandons the Bible and the gospel. Their buildings are repurposed into cafes, luxury homes, bars and yoga centres. In fact, we are meeting in a church that narrowly avoided being repurposed in 2012 itself. 
Jesus' design for his church is that it would be salty, that it would be different, that we'd hold fast to his teachings and follow him, knowing that the gospel transforms lives. But of course, this trend for churches to kind of abandon the gospel and just do anything to get people in the door was then also reacted against by churches that went the other way. And so their desire was, all right, we are not going to abandon the truth of the gospel. We will hold fast to these things. We're going to bunker down and make sure we do not lose the gospel. But what they would do is to pull right away from the world and to bunker down into a kind of a, a Christian bubble and to stay away from culture and to stay away from threats, to have a this-is-war mentality and us-versus-them kind of reality and really give up on getting people through the door to virtually shut the doors but to just focus on holding on to the truth. And Jesus has a word for churches that do this too. In Matthew 5, 14 to 16, the rest of this section, look what he says. He says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, Jesus uses such a simple illustration. It starts with the city on a hill. And again, people have tried to work out the details of this metaphor. It's kind of like you're guarding things. So it's, the church is meant to, to guard key doctrine or whatever. Look, Jesus is making a very simple point. Have you ever tried to hide a city on a hill? It's very difficult. I've never attempted it. But if you have a giant hill and on top of it is a giant city, good luck hiding that from sight. The idea is this thing is meant to be visible. And then he backs it up with the second one and says again, you don't, you don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket. It's a fire hazard. So very practical advice for people as well. But of course, he's making the point that would be insane. The purpose of a light is to shine and to shine out to as large an area as possible. And so you would never put it under a basket because that's the opposite of what you're trying to do. The city isn't meant to be hidden and can't be. And a light's not meant to be hidden away. And so he's saying, the church, my followers are not meant to be hidden off in some corner. It says you're the light of the world. You are meant to be in the world and yet not of it, living out radically and distinct lives, but loving people and engaging with them where they're at. So he says to the church, don't hide away. That's his point. The church should be engaged with the world, not off in a bunker and once a year kind of throwing Bibles over the thing, hoping it makes someone a Christian, then you lower the drawbridge, bring them in, and then close it up again. A church is meant to be in and amongst the world, loving people, following Jesus, holding fast to the truth of the gospel, not compromising, and yet holding out the truth so that people would come to know him. See, the sad thing is when churches, when churches bunker down, the belief is that this is what will be safe. This will guard true, true teaching and true Christianity for us and the next generation. But it doesn't. It's kind of counterintuitive in that way. It's the same as if you want to make resilient kids, you can't just hide them away from every single risk and danger. We know that with kids, that if kids are able to play and get out in the dirt where they eat it, we don't know why. Nobody knows why. When they go to the, the beach and you've got, in one hand, biscuits and then sand, they're like, I just, I just want to know what the sand is like and stuff it in their mouths. And of course, as a parent, you're stressed about all these things because you know there's germs and bacteria and all of these things. And there is, of course, a way to be negligent as a parent. But the truth is, your kids need to be out there and amongst them because it builds their immunity. They actually grow strong through it. And it weakens them over time for them to avoid every single risk or danger. 
That's the difficulty of parenting is navigating that, that kind of that gap. In the same way, churches that hold the view that the safest way to hold on to the gospel is just to bunker away from the world end up withering away. Because Jesus says you're the light of the world. You're meant to be out there engaging with those worldviews and still holding on to the gospel. See, to just compromise and to put away all the difficult things about the gospel and to edit the Bible is to avoid the tension that's there in being a community that are both confronting to the culture and compelling. But in a similar way, just hiding away is another way to avoid the difficulty of having to engage with a world that doesn't accept Jesus and maybe even actively rejects it. But this is Jesus' vision for his church, to be salt and light. Because the goal of all this holiness is that people would come to a saving knowledge of God. Do you see how he ended this section? In Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the end goal of his church. That people would be reunited with their creator, their maker, their heavenly Father. The reason that the church is to be radically holy, to follow Jesus with all their heart, is so that people would see that and be like, gosh, some of the things you do, I don't know about that, but some of the other things are are incredible, the way you love people and serve and all these things. And it would cause them to ask questions so that Christians would share the gospel and people would come to know their Heavenly Father and get saved, to be restored, to be reunited with their Heavenly Father. This is what the church is to be about. A little while ago, I saw a documentary, and I won't share the title of it because it will give away the story a little. But it starts with two characters, Edward Galland and Robert Shafran, who meet each other at college. And they immediately notice something very strange about the other. They notice that the other person looks almost exactly the same. No, in fact, they look exactly the same. And they realize, as they start digging a bit deeper, that both of them were adopted. And then as they dig a bit further, they realize that they actually are twin brothers. And this story blows up and goes huge. And then another element is introduced. A guy called David Kelman sees this story and says, wow, they don't just look like each other. They look exactly like me. And so it turns out that three brothers who were triplets, separated and adopted out, actually find one another and realize that they are brothers by birth, triplets. And then as they dig further, the story almost becomes a little bit stranger. They were all adopted out by an adoption agency called Louise Wise, who at the time said that they couldn't give the boys out to the same family because no one wanted to take three brothers at the same time. But the truth was it was actually a cruel experiment by someone called Peter Neubauer, who was trying to research the difference between nature and nurture. And so the experiment was to get twins or even triplets and send them out to different families, one working class, one middle class, and one you know, reasonably wealthy family, to see how different upbringings affected people who essentially had the same biology. And when they found this out, they found out it was not just them, but multiple sets of other twins who this had happened to as well. And of course, people were outraged by this. And the reason you're outraged is you think, who are you to break up a family? Families are actually meant to be together. It should make you angry. And as they go through the documentary, pairing after pairing are angry about what happened. It should awaken a response in Christians, a sense of outrage, 
that sin has separated people from their heavenly Father. That sin wrecks families. That when people reject their heavenly Father and God, it breaks up what was meant to be. Jesus calls his church to be the kind of church who care about this, who know that Jesus is the answer, that we in our sin have rejected God. We've said, I'd rather do my life without you. I'll work out how I'm going to do things. Thank you very much. And when we do that, it shatters the cosmic union between God, the creator, and his creation, his people. And Jesus says, you ought to have a heart about this because Jesus is there teaching these people about us because he's going to be the solution, the one who dies on the cross for our sin to take away the penalty that separated us from God, death everlasting, so that we might be forgiven and restored. To reunite God's family, to reunite people with their heavenly Father. It's a gospel of reconciliation. Jesus says this is what his church is to be about. And from the beginning, this has been our heart for the church. There would be a community that holds fast to the gospel and in that way, both confronts and compels the culture. But ultimately has a heart to see people come to know and love their Heavenly Father, to have their sins washed away, to be made new by the Holy Spirit. And the truth is that God has worked in this community and in us. It's been amazing to be a part of, from 2013 even to now, to see the lives that it's impacted. And some of you are sitting in this room having experienced that, God working through this community. And so I wanted to say at the end of this, I feel really honoured to be able to serve you guys in this way. And I want to say as well that Mel and I feel called to this work. I don't want to be specific about that term, feel called, because we can feel lots of things one week and then not the other. So I want to give you some confidence about what I'm saying there. It's very clear that there is one calling for every follower of Jesus. That's to love God and to love others. Jesus commissions his church to make disciples and to teach them everything that he has taught them. That is... That is true of every Christian, regardless. But the question every Christian should ask is, given my gifting, my life circumstances, and my capacity, where is the place where I can love and serve the most people to the glory of God? And I can say for Mel and I, we 100% feel it's here in this context serving City Light Balmain. That we've been all in from the start, and that's still the case. That we've made so many connections, not just in this church family, but in the community here. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk down Darling Street with Mel, but because she's here in the community, in the school, runs a dance studio here as well, she's uh, been unofficially anointed the people's champion of Balmain. And we, we, I, even, I even tried to time it at one point. It can take upwards of 12 to 15 minutes to make it 100 metres down the road because there are so many stop and chats. It's, it's very difficult in that way. But Mel... Mel has such a heart for people and such a love for them and such an openness with them that people are willing to share their lives, even on Darling Street, within earshot of everyone who's around. Who's around. And all that to say that we are in and we're in deep. That we love you guys. We love this community. And we love how God has been working here. I want to say that we feel called to you. That this isn't just a church, but a family. That we've been through some of your hardest moments and you've been through them with us too. Some of you were here when we were living in our little apartment thing over the chicken shop that we got for cheap because the last one had burnt down and no one wants to live over a chicken shop anyway. And, uh, and some of you were in that group when we were you know, sleeping in the lounge room because Zebby had just been born. We didn't have enough room to put all our kids and all that sort of thing. And some of you have joined us even just recently and been a part of our lives. We feel called to serve you guys as our church family.
feel called to this leadership team. Leah and Paul were here right from the start. Leah, I think, was drumming at our first Christmas, pregnant, which opened her up to all kinds of jokes about Mary and all that sort of stuff because everyone was, you know, dressed up and that sort of thing, but has been serving even as part of the admin team from the, from the start and now on staff. We hear Jacob was a part of the core team and Sarah came along and we were a part of their, their, their budding relationship that then became a marriage that now has become a family and who's now still serving on staff team. And for Anna, who was actually part of that Bible study that was over the chicken shop, she went all the way back to the days when sometimes you'd have to go past the grease trap being emptied out. just to get, that's, that's real commitment to the Word of God, right? <laughs> to, to persevere past that and all the other wafting smells that were coming up from there, just to meet with God's people and to encourage one another. And we feel called to lead this leadership team. And we feel confident that God is going to work through the elders and leaders of this church, even as he has, and that God has much more work to do in the lives, in our lives of you here, and also in the lives of those who will come to know him by his mercy. So I want to finish by asking you to, to pray for me, even as you did earlier. And if you were to pray for one thing, I think for me in this role in particular, it would be to pray for courage and humility. I remember sitting in a, a, a group of um, potential church planners at the time. Gavin and I were both there, and there was a, another group, and there was uh, one guy leading it. And someone asked him, what are, the, what are the key characteristics for a church planner? And he said, without hesitation, courage and humility. And the reason for that is I think they're mutually authenticating characteristics. That humility without courage isn't really humility, and that courage without humility isn't really courage, it's bravado. So the prayer would be that as a follower of Jesus, I'll be humble enough to admit mistakes. And I've made many, and even over the last year in leading, but I'll be humble enough to actually admit that. But that I'd also have courage to hold fast to the gospel under the pressure to compromise or to make it easier, but to hold fast to that and to continue to want to reach people for the sake of Christ. And so pray for me, because I think after the year that we've had, my temptation, honestly, would be towards cowardice, to just take it easy, to not take any more risks for the gospel, to try and play it safe, but to remember that Jesus called to his churches to be salt and light. So pray for me in that. But pray for me in that also, in that the leader that shared that insight about courage and humility was later disqualified for pride in ministry. And so it's a reminder that insight is not the same as change, and that you can say things. To be honest, I think he was actually quoting someone else without actually crediting them, which was probably part of the issue. But, uh, but it is the case that you can know these things and yet not heed them. So pray that I would. But also pray for Mel. One of the things that, just, that drew me to Mel from the start was just her love for God and for other people. And you know her as someone who has a joyful faith and a passion to follow Jesus that she is kind, she's beautiful, she's gifted, she's resilient. And so you might be tempted to think, she doesn't really need that much prayer. But you've got to remember that she's married to me. <laughs> and so she's going to need a lot of prayer. But we are, in marriage, the teaching of Scripture is that we are one flesh, which means we share everything wrapped in together, and it includes life and ministry. And for wives often of lead pastors, you get a lot of what's called secondhand smoke. That is, situations or difficulties that you aren't directly involved in, but that your husband is. And she's the one, when I lack courage and humility, who's the first to experience it. 
And she's the one when I'm being self-pitying and giving in to that who's going to experience it. So pray for her. And pray for our kids. They are so great. And they are so, like Mel was sharing, just so keen. They have just no inhibitions about the gospel and just putting it out there. And pray that they would grow up loving. I mean, it was such a beautiful thing to see as we went down to the park, some of you guys taking them aside to play with them and to see what it's like when a church is across generations. That's part of God's wisdom in bringing people together from diverse backgrounds. And pray that they would grow up loving church and knowing that these are my older brothers and sisters in Christ. That these are the people who put up with me running around and, and causing chaos because they love me and they know me. And pray that they would love being a part of a family who are leading out of church. It's an honor to serve in this capacity and I take it seriously. It says in James that those who teach will be judged more strictly and that I'm to keep watch over souls. So pray, Mel and I as we do this, that we will do it in love, knowing that Jesus is on the throne, that he's got this, he will build his church and that ultimately he's the one who upholds us by his grace and he has brought us safe thus far and will safely bring us home. Let's pray together. Father, we just praise you that you are a good and loving Heavenly Father and that your main means of rescuing people is through your church. So Father, we pray that you would lead us to be a church that is sold in light, that is distinct and different and yet compelling, is able to hold fast to the truth without compromise, and yet love with compassion and mercy. And Father, we pray that we'd see many sons and daughters come to life and salvation in you. May you strengthen us to serve and to love, and may everything we do honor Christ, knowing that ultimately you are the one who has appointed him head of the church, and you will bring all things under one head, even Christ, even as you are. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.